You can be opening your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. Excuse me. 1 John chapter 4 and 18 uh, is going to be the basic uh, text in the territory we're going to be in. But I want to read, before I read 1 John 4, 18, I want to read uh, a few verses before 18. And that will be uh, verses 12 uh, and then 17 and then 18. So, in 1 John 4 and verse 12, he says, uh, and, and I want you to be listening for certain words. I mean, all through the message, but there's certain words that all kind of have a relationship. The words are love, oneness, um, fullness, and perfect. Uh, or any uh, version of perfect. Perfected, made perfect. Uh, th- those four words all kind of... <clears throat> will be used. So in verse 12, he says, No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. And then dropping down to verse 17, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. And then our text, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. So let us pray. Once again, our Father, we come to Thee, recognizing as always our total dependence upon You. And Father... We pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, take these words and uh, that you would uh, apply them to our hearts, that you'd warm our hearts, that you would strengthen our hearts, that the love of God would be poured into and shed abroad in our hearts by the words, these words of life that you have. Feel in a way like Moses when he says, if if you go not with us, we will not go up. And I feel personally, to be quite frank, uh, if you're not going to bless and take these words, uh, then we might as well pack it up and go home. So we pray your blessing upon this word to thine own glory and to thy praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So I very much want to return to just a segment or a small portion of a previous sermon uh, and develop and further expand that segment now. And this is because it is a most tremendous and edifying truth and concept, and it is the spiritual medicine that I feel the church needs right now. Now, let me rephrase that. It is the spiritual medicine that we all need constantly and perpetually. I trust that it is the Holy Spirit's teaching and not my own musings and putting things together of myself. But I keep finding these kind of spiritual puzzle pieces that manifest a relationship and a kind of a pairing 
with other pieces of divine truth. And the more I find and kind of interlock them, the bigger and broader and clearer the overall puzzle becomes. Uh, <clears throat> and, the, and the picture begins, uh, begins to form and the eyes of the understanding, as Paul puts it, are enlightened. So, okay, here is one of the most profound and glorious and absolute certain works that God Almighty is accomplishing in us, for us, and through us. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you have to understand, beloved, in our firm belief in the sovereignty of God, in that consoling truth of the sovereignty of God, that not a sparrow falls to the ground without our Father's knowledge. And so the hymn writer wrote, because his eye is on the sparrow, I know he watches me. There is a great consolation in knowing that he watches me. He watches in the movement of every step we take, every thought we think, and every experience we feel. Psalm 139 makes this so abundantly clear, which I hope to, to revisit. But as he is steadfastly watching me, he is just as steadfastly perfecting me. Perfecting that which concerneth me. You remember that from Psalm 138. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. We talked of that. So God is doing the work of perfecting. It is his work. It is the work of his hands. The Lord will perfect, and perfecting there is a continuous action. It is ongoing, so David ends that verse, that, that verse by uh, saying, Keep it going. Don't abandon this work. Forsake not the work of thy own hands, he says. So God is, is working in us. We're not always conscious of it. We are not always aware of it. He's working when we know it not. But there is a perfection that God is about. There is a perfection that he is after. There is a work that he's working, though we feel it not or even perceive it not. But it is a specific work that he is working in us that I would speak of now. The scriptures speak of this work in terms of certainty. Absolute certainty. It is a work that none can stop, none can thwart, and none can halt its progress. And why is that? And why will it progress with absolute certainty? Because Almighty God is the author uh, and finisher of it. None shall stay his hand or hold his hand back or dare prevent him from performing all of his pleasure, is what the Scriptures say. For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. This is the certainty of the work and the absolute confidence. Being confident, the great Apostle Paul asserts of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will, no question, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. But the question is, what, what is it? What, what is this unstoppable good work that will steadily march on, no man staying it. That great work, which the entire Trinity is about, may not be what you're thinking about right at this time. But it is comprised of four words, 
And therefore, these four words in my mind have become the title of this message, which you may have already seen in the bulletin, but the first two of which are made perfect. Made perfect. There's something glorious here. In these two words, the last two, which are the main thrust of this message, uh, we will come to, and they will deal with what we are made perfect in, and what is the end of the perfected state, or uh, what Paul calls the perfect man. But returning to these words made perfect, I would say two things about this work. It is a work of God, which was upon God, and then to the children which were given him. And, and secondly, because it is a work of God, it is a certain work. The absolute certainty of us being made perfect directly relates to our brother and captain of our salvation being made perfect first. Inasmuch as he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, then both are made perfect. The only way, the only reason, the sole cause that we are being made perfect has to do with another astounding fact of our union with Christ. This intimate connection and oneness with the captain of our, salva- of our salvation, he tells uh, his father very plainly in John seventeen twenty one that they all may be one as thou father art in me and I in thee that they also may be one in us. The oneness included brotherhood. For which cause he's not ashamed to call us brothers. To be able to call us brothers was the highest desire the, the fellowship with him and he with us in glory. I truly believe that that was the joy that was set before him that Hebrews uh, speaks of. But first understand how the word perfect or made perfect is being used here. The primary emphasis is not flawless or without error so much as it is about completeness or finished product. So Paul speaks of this perfection, the means and the ways to it and its end, when he clarifies it to the believers in in Corinth, uh, in 2 Corinthians 13.9, where he says, For we are glad when we are weak and ye are strong, and this also we wish. It's interesting, he uses the word wish, but he does, at least in the King James. And this also we wish, even your perfection. And he goes on to say that this perfection in them is not carried on by him being sharp or or later with the Thessalonians burdensome with them. Which he admits in that that other verse that this would be an abuse of the power which Christ had given him for edification and not for or to destruction. And so he exhorts Titus, the same kind of approach, meekness and gentleness toward all men, as he does the Thessalonians not being burdensome. So he says there, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome, 
as the apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. This, Paul is saying, is his approach. Gentle, not sharpness, not burdensome, according to the power which the Lord had given him unto edification. Edification will promote this perfection in you that we wish for. 2 Corinthians 13.9 So, for now, from this we simply see again and again this perfection that the Apostle Paul wished for having a direct relationship to edification. And edification being saturated with love, gentleness, as Paul emphasized in Ephesians 4.16, that love is an essential ingredient in the edification recipe. <coughs> Maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love, in true unfeigned or unfake love. But listen to the words, listen to the whole context beginning in verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Fullness. What is this fullness that we are to come to? Till we all come unto a perfect man, unto this measure, this fullness of Christ. So the part of the concept there is that we're moving toward a goal. We're going somewhere until we all come to. Now, could this be the same fullness that God, uh, that the apostle speaks of in our Ephesians 3 passage? And I not only believe it is the same fullness, uh, but it is arrived at in the same manner. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, if you recall, and all through verses 17 through 19, he is charging us to get intimately familiar with God's love for us, uh, to imbibe it, to be rooted in it, he says, grounded in it, to comprehend with all saints, to scale its heights, to plumb its depths, to traverse its length and width, to know the love of Christ which passes or transcends our mental comprehension. So we're like, why are you using such excessive and dramatic and extreme language, Paul? What will we gain by this? Why such a dogmatic charge and, and such, such an earnest challenge to us? And here it is. The more you explore this love of Christ and triune love of God for you, when you find yourself singing as we just did with the hymn writer, into the love of Jesus deeper and deeper I go, then you will see why I exhort this pursuit. This is why, verse 17b, 
that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, that's the same Greek word as fullness of Christ that Paul says till we come to. This perfect man, according to or measured by the stature of the fullness of Christ. So put this together. I'm seeing a lot of sleepy eyes. And um, so I guess we will have to push ourselves a little bit. You can put this together. Made perfect. What is perfect? What is perfection? Who is perfect? And we would all say Christ. So, and Paul says Christ as the measurement of the perfect man which we are to come to. And what characterizes this, this, this measurement standard? What characterizes this measurement standard, this forerunner, this perfect man, in a word, fullness? Fullness. Of his fullness have all we received, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, let me talk about what this fullness is not. A long time ago, I had you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 3, verses 16 through 19, the beginning of this year. And that was going to be the springboard text from which we were going to launch in, into this study. Uh, but to date, uh, some have suggested I have not done the exposition of the passage itself, just kind of talked around it, uh, so to speak. But I have. Not in a verse-by-verse uh, progression chronologically. Uh, we are exp- exposing the truth of the, the passage. We're providing exposition, albeit not in the, in the sequence that the verses come to us on the page. But, and so, this is a very convenient segue, speaking of this fullness. A segue back into our Ephesians passage 3 and verses 19 where Paul talks of it. That, kind of a, you know, a purpose clause, that or in order that ye might be filled, filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, the apostle is describing the pathway to this fullness or how we arrive at it. So he tells these Ephesian believers and us as well that we come to this fullness as we grapple with and aggressively and continually seek to apprehend and to know this love of God. So what does this being filled with the fullness of God? What does it not mean? And sometimes, as you know, it helps to talk about what something doesn't mean first in order to arrive at what it does mean. But there was in Paul's day a false mysticism that Paul abominated. And he had to contend with these uh, false teachers continually. He says, Beware lest any man spoil you through, Pastor mentioned this in his, his message, through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So there were these mystery religions, these cults in his day, as, as there are still. Uh, there, were, there were teachings about gradations uh, between man and God. And man could somehow travel from one to the other. And the apostle 
abominates these falsehoods. And they still exist today in Eastern religions. Cults, concepts such as are being dissolved in God and in the eternal. So I'll give you a couple examples. Hinduism. Hinduism, for example, teaches that final salvation means absorption in the eternal. You lose your individuality. You lose your personality. You become lost in the, in the divine. Uh, lost in the eternal. And then there is pantheism. Which teaches that God is in everything and therefore everything is God. But both of these have one thing in common. They have this in common. The distinction between man and God is, is lost. Man is in God or God is in man. But there's one huge problem with, with these. These traditions of men and rudiments of the world, this philosophical vain deceit Paul calls it, it is not after Christ and it's never found in the Bible. <clears throat> so what does this being filled with all the fullness of God mean? And does this perfect man we are to come to in Ephesians 4.13 Correlate with the fullness Paul prays for, we are to be filled with in Ephesians 3 19. Absolutely. Perfection and fullness go together. The older theologians spoke of perfections, God's perfections, or the ways in which He was perfect. God is perfect, and He is perfecting. Uh, there is an order or sequence in His perfecting. First, Christ, our captain, according to Hebrews, being made perfect, albeit through sufferings, made perfect. Then by virtue of being made perfect, he becomes the author of eternal salvation unto us. And thereby we are made perfect in him. We are complete in him, perfected in him and in his likeness. We emulate and imitate the grand prototype both in his perfection as well as his fullness. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, to date, we have been talking a lot about who God is. If you, if, if you want a different term, uh, his constitutional identity uh, and divine personality, if you're kind of weary of who he is essentially or his essence. But his divine personality and constitutional identity is he is love. In fact, John Gill, speaking on this, says, God is love. His love, he loves himself. There is an entire love between the three divine persons who are in the strictest and in the most inconceivable and inexpressible manner affected to each other. Their love is natural and essential. Seeing he is love itself and in his breast is nothing else but love. End quote. And I trust by the Holy Spirit that is firmly fixed and settled 
in your mind. But now we're talking about what His love accomplishes. We are now talking about what His love coming to us accomplishes in us, with us, and through us. That's the new direction. Love is behind God's actions. And He wants love to be behind ours. But there is a problem with us. We are without strength in this. And loveless. We are loveless. Void of a love for God and void of a love for others. But all the while, an idolatrous love for self. What a mess. What a dilemma. We, apart from God's perfecting us or being made perfect, are broke. Not that we love God, John says. That's the way he describes us. Now, this is going to hurt a little. The mistake we make when considering this subject is expecting love from others who are broke as well. We're all broke. Deciding whether or not we will love others if they're showing love to us. Not seeing that we are just as much a broken vessel, a clay pot, as they are in expecting this from them. Now, I've been on the planet for 64 years and a Christian for the last 40 of them, and we are familiar because we have done it ourselves, supplying the preacher's message to our neighbor. This message is not for your neighbor. This message is for you. This message is for me. Oh, does so-and-so need to hear this? She really needs to cultivate a more loving spirit. Now, this is common. We all know it. But it's massively erroneous thinking. And here is the shocking reality. You do not love me. And I do not love you. And we never would. And there we would remain. Period. That's the bad news. There is some good news. Oh, goody. There is some good news. But if we find ourselves offended by being told we are broke, I would suggest why that happens. In a subtle manner, we build a card castle of self-righteousness. And the devil is constantly there to help us. But because whom the Lord loves, he corrects. And because his love is unconditional... He comes along and he pulls a card from that bottom row of our card pyramid of self-righteousness and the whole thing collapses. And still holding that one card, he says, all our righteousnesses are of, of the worth of filthy rags. We just can't seem to believe that God's love is unconditional. It has nothing to do with conditions. I will love them freely. I am not sending forth any conditions to be met. Stop trying to climb the performance ladder to gain my acceptance. I love you with no eye towards your efforts to please me or gain my acceptance. I love you. And I love you in the exact condition that I found you. While we were yet sinners. 
I did not set my love upon you because you were this or that. It was in the freedom of my choice. I love you just the way you are. This may not be the best illustration of this principle, but I was reminded of a very popular song by Billy Joel uh, (laughs) titled Just the Way You Are. He talks about don't go changing. And, uh, you know, this. She's doing all these things. Don't go coloring your hair. I love you just the way you are. And maybe it breaks down a little bit as uh, we're trying to build our card castle of self-righteousness or doing all these things. And maybe God will love me now. Or if I make these changes, don't go changing. I love you just the way you are. That's the way I found you. So if we're going to love one another in Community Baptist Church in a way and a manner that pleases God, God must step in. God must change us. God must perfect this virtue in us. And this is a process and a progress. So how is he going to do it? He's going to do it by opening our eyes to behold him for who and what he is and does. The son declares this and he clarifies this for us. Michael spoke of this this morning as well. He that loveth not knoweth not God, John says. That's that's your problem. That's our problem. Our lack of loving is due to our lack of knowing. And this is where Jesus steps in by the Holy Spirit. This is where how Jesus, where and how Jesus remedies our knoweth not God problem. I will tell you about the Father. I will instruct you and inform your knowledge. You love not because you know him not. There is a defect in your understanding. I have come to help and clarify your understanding. First John 5.20 We know that the Son of God has come and have given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And it's as if Christ is saying, I will broadcast, I will loudly declare who he is, and then, dearly beloved, I'll tell you why I declare him my father. John seventeen twenty six, And I have declared unto them, or made known, thy name, and will declare it. Why, Jesus, did you declare the Father and will continue doing so? For this reason, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, instilled, distilled, perfected in them, and I in them. We've got to get this. We've got, Jesus is saying, we, we have to, we have to get this love in them. How can one not see that this was the goal of all his redemptive work? Beautifully expressed in John 17, 26, as it comes down to this stupendous and spectacular and experiential relationship that the Son is bringing us into. How can one not see the supremacy of love in every direction you look, beginning, middle, and end? Why do we speak so much of love? Why do I speak so much of love? Why do I preach so much of love? It is not to the exclusion of His other attributes. 
or works or ways. It is because it is at the center and woven through and permeating and extending throughout all that God and Christ are and do all their works and ways which extend to us, dearly beloved. His love is everywhere for us. Love was behind making us imperfects perfect. Love is perfecting us. The subject of covenants came up recently. Do you want to talk about covenants? Love was at the core of the eternal, everlasting covenant. The contract made between the three persons. All the other covenants, Abrahamic, Davidic, Noahic, all the other covenants were subsidiary of the everlasting covenant, of which David said, He hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, because it was a contract of love and grace. And though my house is not in order and I have made a mess of things, yet this eternal covenant of grace and love washes me clean and gives me a place in heaven for sure. It had nothing to do with David's performance, his obedience, his disobedience, any of his performance. And it has nothing to do with our performance. But my, the devil sure points us to our own supposed righteousness. It has nothing to do with it. It's a God of grace. So, this is not an inordinate preoccupation with one side of God's character. This is not a lopsided theological perspective. If that's the way you're seeing it, you're missing the point. So, maybe it will help for me to break it down this way. Because love pervades God, God pervades or love pervades his works. We, the children of God, by faith, are one of his works, albeit works in progress, but very possibly one of his most important works. That work, in brief, is us mirroring his image. Well, what image is that? You know, for the longest time in my Christian life, I kept seeing that verse. Um, you know, when times would be hard, like, you know, my brother-in-law said one time, sanctification hurts. You know, and it was all this, all these things that the God had to do to conform us to the image of Christ. And, um, but after a while of going through a lot of trials and just kind of like, well, accepting it, well, this is how I'm going to be conformed to the image of Christ. I, I it began to become... Uh, become blurry and I was like what is this image (laughs) I mean how am I doing are we getting any closer to it and uh, I think you can identify with that for whom the father did foreknow he also did predestinate to be conformed to be molded or shaped into the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren The image of the Son that we are to be conformed to is the express image of the Father. It is the goal or work of God that we are or are becoming image bearers of His Son. 
exact images, which seems to be the implication of the last part of that verse, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Brothers look alike. How shall all men know that we are his image bearers, adherents, disciples? What is the thing that stands out the most and is the highest evidence and gives it away? That ye love one another. They observe that we love one another because our master loves us and loved us first. And so in John 13, 34, he says that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. He is the exemplar and is saying in this, bear this image of my person, love. If you would express my image as I am expressing, as I am the express image of my father, then that image is borne out and expressed by fervent charity amongst yourselves. And Peter elevates this. Peter, Peter elevates the supremacy of love in our conformity to Christ's image in our emulating his love to others. In our emulating his love to others. And how does he elevate it? He puts it this way. Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Paul says this is where it is all going. This is the end and aim, the completion of the commandment. So he charges Timothy... Do not give heed to fables and endless genealogies and vain jangling. These things just minister questions and strivings. This is not the aim and the main thrust of your preaching, ministry, or manner, Timothy. Some have swerved off course and turned aside to vain jangling, which literally means uh, proud, self-conceited talk, excessively or noisily squabbling talking against what God has revealed and against God himself. And where did those end up, Timothy? They, desiring to be teachers of the law, wanting to be somebody, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. They don't know what they're talking about or where they got their their proof. Proud theological airheads. Proud knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy and strife and railings, evil surmisings. Do not give heed to these things. Central to your ministry, Timothy, is godly edifying. This so do. Now the end of the commandment, or the aim of the charge that some render it, that Paul was giving Timothy, is love. Love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of, a, of faith unfeigned. Genuine Christ-like love should be sprinkled all throughout your entire ministry and must be conspicuously obvious, Timothy. Both in what ravishes your own heart and what is expressed to others under your charge. And Paul declares in another place that this had to be the end of the commandment or aim of the charge for himself. He knew that the love of Christ had to be conspicuously obvious and experienced first in his own heart. If love would come out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned to others, and so he says more emphatically, 
If I have not or show not this perfect love, I am nothing. Now, there's a huge overriding principle here that some have misinterpreted as just so much vain repetition or riding a hobby horse. But Scripture is very clear on this. Whether we are talking of of love in terms of what God is versus what He shows or what we receive of His love and then that overspills to, to others, love is prominent. Love is interspersed in all that we are, in all that we become in Christ, and in all that we do. It is set very high on a pedestal. And it is high priority with God, to say the least. It was this paramount in the Apostle's mind, if the love of God is absent, I am nothing. By comparison, all my achievements, all my accolades aren't worth a pile of manure, a dung heap. So think about it. Nothing and everything. If not possessing the love of Christ means a man is nothing, then knowing the love of Christ means a man is something. But much more, he is everything. The love of God infused into your heart makes you everything. It makes you complete. It makes you strong. Fullness. And here I could digress to talk of the sheer power and weight of God's love and how it empowers us, but I'll allow Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones to do so. Maybe, uh, maybe you need to hear another voice in this, in, uh, in these things. He not only brings out the power of this love on man's affections, uh, but also this experiencing, this knowing the love of Christ is the end goal of all our lives and study, all of our study of the Bible, all our study of theology all of our study of doctrine. So referring to the Apostle's exhortation in Ephesians to know the love of Christ, he says, quote, We must never fall into error of imagining that because we are Christians, we therefore know all about the love of God. Most of us are but as children paddling at the edge of an ocean. There are abysmal depths in this love of God which we know nothing The Apostle is praying that these Ephesians and we with them may go out into the depths and the deeps and discover things which we never even imagined. This is what Paul is praying for these Ephesians. He longs for them also to know and apprehend Christ because to know Him is to know His love. The more we know Him, the more we shall know His love toward us. These things are indivisible and cannot be separated. So he goes on to say uh, that this comprehension is not to be uh, a a dead-end kind of mental exercise. It is not the logical deduction of your doctrinal and theological studies. Doctrine is not uh, an end in itself. He does not downplay doctrine, calling it vital and essential, but never what he called a terminus. So he strongly asserts it is possible for us to know all doctrine in a sense and yet not know this. So he goes on to say, quote, We are dealing with love, not as a concept, but as the actual love of Christ. It is personal. It refers to a personal knowledge of him and of his love to us. 
The Apostle John in his first epistle writes in a similar vein, saying, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. And so he conclusively and most dogmatically asserts, The end of all our knowledge should be this knowledge of the love of Christ to us. The end and purpose and objective of every doctrine doctrine is to bring us to this. If your knowledge of the scripture and of the doctrine of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has not brought you to this knowledge of the love of Christ, you should be profoundly dissatisfied and disturbed. Pretty strong. End quote. And why is that, Brother Martin? It is because this is the end goal God has for us. This is the perfect man that we are to come to and that Paul speaks of. These are the plans and the thoughts that he thinks toward us and the expected end that he is moving us toward. That we are made perfect. I and them and thou and me that they may be me made perfect in one. So this is now where we will finish the message. By answering the question of what are we made perfect in? Of what are we made perfect in? What constitutes this perfect man and this fullness that Paul prays that we would be filled with, the fullness we are to reach for? So John has been telling us in the Gospel, Paul has been telling us in Ephesians, and 1 John 4 tells us we are made perfect in love. And if you forget everything else, Get this, what we have been saying has been building and building to this kind of a grand climax. And let me hasten to say that what John is saying by us being made perfect in love is not talking about God's attitude or manner in which he is perfecting us. It's not perfecting us out of love or from a motive of love. No, no. We are made perfect in love. And we must get the concept because by nature we love ourselves and have no love to give. God must provide the lack. By the work and power of Almighty God, the Holy Spirit, if we are to love outward, He must work inward and into the very fabric of our being His perfect love. Work it into us. Made perfect in or into love. Here's an illustration. As a woman woman makes bread, okay, she needs the bread dough. Working and mixing and kneading the ingredients. Folding and sometimes even punching the dough. You, You can see that in your mind. The flour, the salt, the leaven into the dough mixture, and so she is perfecting it. God is involved in this perfecting process in us. And it is a process that is bringing us to this perfect man which Paul speaks of. And what characterizes the perfect man? Perfect love, just like his master who has perfected him in love. But you say... Oh, what I wouldn't give to experience and feel this perfect love you've been speaking about for so long. 
By nature, I'm not a loving person and did not grow. I, I did not know love growing up. Experiencing this wonderful love is not my experience. In the course of one week or even one day, things happen that cause the strongest and deepest emotions in me. Emotions of confusion, exasperation, anger, anxiety, defeat. Things that challenge my faith, resulting in sorrow and depression and worse. Well, the first thing I would say, dear child of God, is that you're not alone. All those emotions can come up under one umbrella term. These grievous emotions are all included and are defined by one word that John uses here. Fear. When we fear, we are unstable and unsettled. We are ill at ease. With fear, we feel insecure. We feel we are adrift without something to hold on to. Like we're losing our moorings. It is a terrible feeling. It is an awful place and position to be in. So fear is a most powerful emotion. And because it is a compilation of all these other negative emotions and probably the most powerful fiery dart in the devil's arsenal, I believe this is why the Holy Spirit led John to choose that specific word. It's all inclusive. He's not just talking about times that we are afraid. It has a much broader application. John says in 4.18, it has torment and is tormenting to the person. Now, the Greek word fear is phobos, P-H-O-B-O-S, from which we get our word phobia. And if you look up the word phobia, all its synonyms are exactly what we just listed. But here is the good news. As powerful as this fear is, it is not as powerful nor anywhere near as powerful as what John describes as its divine antithesis or extreme opposite, which is perfect love. Divine love, the almighty love that God is perfecting in us, it is stronger. It is more powerful than any negativity we experience in this life. But you say, I know about God's love. I've, I've read about it many times in the Bible. But I'm still plagued with far too many fears, much fear in, in, in all its evil offspring. To which John resp- responds with a most profound insight and the exact diagnosis of the problem. First John 4.18 He that feareth is not made perfect in love. He that is in that exact condition just described is not made perfect in love. And made perfect also has the idea of made whole. So the Spirit is described as pouring this love into our hearts. Romans 5.5 5. And when we think of pouring, we think liquid and flushing. So like in the medical field, we cleanse the wound by irrigation. We, we irrigate out the contaminants in the wound. 
And we are perfected in love as perfect love is poured into our hearts, irrigating, displacing fear and replacing it with love. The perfect love produces peace, perfect peace. Being overcome and overpowered by the Holy Spirit, communicating God's perfect love to us, as in the case of Romans 5, 5, it becomes the divine medicine for all ills and casts out all fear. Matthew Henry says, so far as love prevails, fear ceases. Regardless of how sick you feel or dire your condition or great your fear, God's love poured into your heart will heal you and strengthen you. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So pray for it. Give him no rest until he spreads it abroad in your heart. This shows the absolute supremacy of God's love and why we should pray constantly. Constantly, yes, for the experience of it. Not something proven to our minds, but that experienced in our hearts. This is why the word heart is used so often uh, by Christ and the apostles. This perfect love flooding the heart is what casts out fear. So anti-anxiety psychology just reaches the mind. The power of thought. The meager strength of positive thinking. No. The perfect love of God targets our heart. The seat of our emotions and deepest feelings. Our Christianity is not just dead orthodoxy, but a vibrant and living faith. Christianity is real. And Christ has purchased not only life, but that we might have it more abundantly. I am never more dull and listless than when a sense of his love for me is absent. And likewise, never more joy unspeakable than when it is present. Christianity, my friends, is all about our emotions and feelings and the deepest affections of our hearts. God has made us emotional creatures. So Paul prays for the Thessalonians. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts. Let's pray.